Hey guys, what's going on? It's Jeff. A quick note before the show begins. The audio from these podcasts mostly come from live video YouTube streams on my channel. They may vary in quality from show to show and reference visual content not described to you, the listener. I'm sorry about that. If you prefer video to go with this audio, head over to youtube.com backslash from us, F-R-U-M-E-S-S for the whole enchilada. Who doesn't like a whole enchilada anyway? And welcome back to another episode of Masterpiece Theater with your host, me, Jeffrey Murdergram. <clears throat> You'll have to excuse my voice. I have a frog in my throat, and I will do my best to read to you from the pages of this tomb, Return of the Living Dead, the novelization, which is now a major motion film. My nose is a little itchy from my mustache. I must trim up some of my hairs. Where we last left off, our friends, our punk rock friends, were hanging out in the cemetery waiting for their mate, Freddy, to get off work. I, I really like this line. Uh, I kind of dig graveyards. They're free of malice, you know, real peaceful. Peaceful. The dead folks ain't scheming and dreaming and conniving anymore. They ain't going to rip us off. We ain't got nothing they need. Oh, <laughs> that's not the case. That is not the case. But we're now at chapter six. Okay. So, um, and begins with Freddie and Frank regaining conscious. Chapter six regaining consciousness. Freddie Travis felt like his head had been banged by two bricks coming together like symbols in a strong man's arms. He groaned and blinked his eyes, watching a kaleidoscope of loud, painful colors dance and uh, dancing and metamorphosizing into a dusty yellow light bulb dangling over his head. When it dawned on him where he was, he panicked, rolling over quickly despite the pain, ready to run from the corpse in the drum. But the steel drum was still lying on its side where it had fallen, and there was no corpse. Freddy moaned and muttered to himself, silly, silly to be scared. I fell and I hit my head. I'll be okay. That damn gas is gone now. Did we really need that dialogue for a character who was by essentially by himself because Frank's unconscious? He staggered a couple of steps and threw up with an uncontrollable rush, vomiting into the rusty puddle of corrosion on the concrete floor. Great descriptors, Mr. Russo. Frank Nello woke up too groaning and holding his stomach and vomited on the floor a few feet away from Freddy. Grabbing a roll of paper towels from a grimy shelf, he tore off a couple of squares and wiped his mouth and then handed the roll to Freddy. Kid, are you okay? Frank said. His voice was harsh and his complexion looked sickly green. I, I don't know, Freddy croaked. My head hurts and my throat. Christ, what a stink. That putrid gas sprayed us in the face. Frank said, we're lucky to be alive. Thank God. He made the sign of the cross drawn by a compulsion to look at what had harmed them, drawn by a compulsion to look at what had harmed them. Frank and Freddie went over to the fallen drum, bent over and looked in the gap. The glass porthole was broken, smashed away in the bottom of the drum was nothing except some traces of black liquid. Well, what happened to the body? Freddie said in a hoarse whisper, it, it must have just dissolved when the air hit it. 
Frank speculated. Let's get out of here, said Freddy. Christ, I never smelt nothing like that in my life. I feel like I'm going to be sick for a month. You look awful, kid, said Frank. I guess I do, do. I do too. Let's go up to the men's room and rinse our mouths out and wash our faces. Shit, that stink is even on our clothes. Wait a minute, Frank cautioned. We don't want Bert Wilson to find this mess we made. He'll think we're stupid or something. We got to clean. We got to get the cellar cleaned up. Forcing themselves to work, even though they both felt as achy, stiff, and nauseated as if they were coming down with a super case of flu, they squeegeed the floor, pushing the rusty water and vomit towards the drain. Then they mopped up using a ringer bucket filled with a solution of water and industrial solvent. When they were done, Frank said, now comes the worst part. We got to get the drum upright again. I ain't touching it, Freddie blurted. Come on, kid. It ain't dangerous no more. If we don't cover our tracks down here, the boss will know we've done something wrong. With extreme reluctance, Freddie helped Frank stand the drum up, push it back to where it had been originally, and put the plastic cap on. Then he grabbed some paper towels and wiped his hands. Now, nobody will ever know the difference, Frank said. I guess if nobody but us ever bothered with these drums in 14 years, they ain't going to bother with them now. Now, can we get out of here, said Freddy? Aching all over, they slowly ascended the basement stairs. Walking through the main floor of the warehouse, Frank spotted the door of the cold storage room standing slightly ajar. He tried to slam it shut, but his arm was stiff and he didn't slam it hard enough the first time. He had to slam it again, grimacing at the pain the exertion brought to his muscles. Christ, my joints are aching like I have arthritis, he said. Are yours? Yeah, said Freddy. We need a hot steaming shower. There weren't any showers in the men's room, but at least they could wash their hands and faces and rinse out their mouths, gargling in the sinks. Toweling off, Frank said, I guess I feel a little better, but not much. I'm still sick as a dog. They came out of the men's room and Freddy sniffed the air very cautiously. I can still smell that foul gas. It must be clogging my nasal passages. Either that or it's all over everything. Frank said, maybe before we cut out, I better spray some deodorant around here. He went back into the men's room and came out with a giant can of Lysol. He started to walk around, spraying everything everywhere. Feeling dizzy. Frank leaned against the men's room door. Suddenly, from back among the tiers of the warehouse shelves, came a loud yipe, followed by a crash. Frank spun around, and Freddy jumped, even though their bones hurt when they moved so abruptly. What was that? Frank said. Sounded like a dog, said Freddy. Dog? How did a goddamn dog get in here? Frank started to move in the direction of the sounds. Freddy said, stop, listen. Both men stopped in their tracks. They cocked their ears. The yiping had stopped, but now they heard a faint panting. Stealthily, they advanced down through a semi-darkened aisle of packed equipment. As they turned a corner, they came upon a big black and white mongrel lying on its side on the floor, breathing heavily. How'd that damn mutt get in here? Frank said, angry and confused. Bert must have screwed up on his security check. Poor thing. What's wrong with it? Said Freddy. They went to the dog and crouched over it, sensing something was very strange about the way the animal was lying there. So utterly collapsed, it looked like a shell of itself, a base relief. Careful, it might have rabies, said Frank said. 
But Freddy started to turn the dog over. It yiped and snapped at him, and he screamed and jumped back as soon as he saw what it really was. A split dog. Dun, dun, dun. A A veterinary specimen had somehow come back to life off of its mounting stand with a bar of the stainless steel stand still sticking through half its body and wedged between the slats of a packing crate in such a way that the dog couldn't get completely free. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Frank yelled. The dog shrieked with its one lung and writhed, writhed, writhed in agony on the mounting bar. Aghast, Freddie backed away, flattening himself against a tier of steel shelving. What are we going to do, Frank? He pleaded fearfully. Frank summoned his courage, mumbling and making another sign of the cross over himself. We got to kill it put it out of its misery he looked around for a killing device and seized up a broom i'll use this as a club he said unscrewing the handle from the brush he started beating at the split dog trying to smack its head but it just shrieked louder and wriggled around like crazy freddie couldn't stand it stop he yelled and grabbed frank's arm let me go we got to finish this animal off frank shouted if i wasn't so achy and weak suddenly there was a shatteringly loud crash from another part of the warehouse, followed by a, a howl of agony. Frank and Freddy spun around, leaving the split dog writhing on the floor. The howling and screaming continued. This is terrifying to me. Um, the howling and screaming continued, accompanied by wall-shaking bangs. In the huge corrugated steel building, all loud noises were exaggerated, taking on extra dimension of urgency and alarm. Frank and Freddy hustled towards the terrible sounds. When Freddy realized where they were coming from, he stopped and tried to hang back, grabbing Frank by the sleeve. No, stop, Frank. The cold storage locker, Freddy pointed. The heavy, the heavy locker door was actually shaking from the screaming and the pounding. And naturally, it had come ajar. But what was inside that hadn't come out yet? Why? Suddenly, Frank realized the answer. Oh, the cadaver in the drawer, he yelled. It can't get out. It must have come to life like the dog, and it's trying to crawl out of the drawer. Run, Freddy screamed, pulling Frank by the arms. But Frank wouldn't go. No, gotta lock the freezer. Pulling himself free of Freddy's grasp, he dashed to the locked door and snapped the big old padlock on the hasp. Then he backed away, trembling, muttering, Oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus. We're fucked, Frank. We're fucked, Freddy lamented. What are we going to do? We got to think, think. Frank ran, ran his thick fingers through thinning hair. Come on, let's go to the office. Get away from all this screaming and pounding. The screaming and pounding of the cadaver in the cold room and the whining of the split dog were muffled by a few decibels when Frank shut the door of the office. Frank slumped behind his desk looking dazed. Freddy sagged into Bert Wilson's big swivel chair, not giving a shit about asking permission, whereas before his recent sickening and frightening experiences, he would have been too timid to impinge, good word, impinge, on the warehouse foreman's domain. From outside, making itself heard above the screaming, whining, and pounding came a resounding rumble of thunder. This is terror. Okay, the scenario here is terrifying to me. Freddie stammered, are, are we going crazy? 
Frank looked up, his eyes red and swollen, his face pallid. No, the shit from the tank, the goddamn chemical got all over everything, and it's bringing all the dead things back to life. I don't believe it. Look, kid, I know it sounds preposterous, but we've seen it with our own eyes. We got to call the police, Frank. No, we can't call the police. Do you know what they do to this company and my job? I get canned. Worse, I'd lose my pension, for Christ's sakes. Frank, this is no time to worry about your friggin' pension. We're in some deep shit here. Who knows what that chemical is going to do to us? We've been contaminated, for God's sake. I ain't calling no friggin' cops. So, again, in order of people whose fault, well, this book sort of changes that because we know who's really at fault. But I guess Frank, when I look at this, Frank has a lot of liability here, too. Then what about the telephone number on the side of the drums where it said to call in case of emergency? If we get... If we call that, if we call, if we call that, we get the army. Do you want the army coming after us? If we're contaminated, they won't screw around with us. They'll probably put us in a steel drum and store us in the basement with the other poor saps. Freddie moaned and shook his head, cradling it in his hands. I can't stand it, Frank. What are we going to do? It's hopeless, hopeless. I'll have to phone the boss as much as I hate to, Frank finally said. He picked up the receiver and dialed. Freddie started talking in a rambling stream of consciousness way mostly to himself my pal sunshine who me and tina when me and tina saw him there all cold and green and bloated i'd have done anything to make it so it never happened to him to have him back with us laughing and smiling and even shooting up if you wanted to a little bit as long as he didn't do too much or get hit with any bad smack i actually prayed that i'd wake up the next morning or the morning after and sunshine he wouldn't be dead but I wouldn't want him to come back like that awful split dog or that dead guy in the cold room. In a way, Sunshine is lucky to be gone, in heaven maybe, and then not have to go through the pain of dying ever again. The phone must have rung for a long time at Bert Wilson's house after Frank dialed. Freddie looked over him and saw he was still waiting with the receiver to his ear, his head hanging down. Finally, he must have because Freddie heard him say into the mouthpiece, uh, Bert, this is Frank. Hey, I really hate to spoil your 4th of July holiday, but I'm afraid we got one hell of a problem on our hands. Dot, dot, dot. Chapter 7. 14 years ago, when Horace Grover, okay, so Colonel Grover is in it. In the book, it's Grover. In the movie, it's Glover. And obviously, you have Grover Bert and Ernie, all names from Sesame Street. When Horace Grover was first assigned uh, to Operation Drummer Boy, he was a first lieutenant, and now he was a full bird colonel, and he had still not tracked down the 24 steel drums containing corpses from the Darrow chemical disaster, which had been diverted by the traitor and defector Raymond Ashton. At about the time that Frank Nello was telling Freddie Travis that he absolutely would not call the number stenciled on the side of the drums, the number that would have put Nello in touch with Colonel Horace Grover and enabled Grover to locate the long-lost contraband, a.k.a. the Easter eggs, the colonel was driving his sleek white Mark, Mark 7 along the coastal highway from Camp Pendleton, California to San Diego, where he and his wife had a luxurious Spanish-style via with a villa with a view of the sea. The villa and the Mark 7 were prerequisites, not of his army salary, but of his wife's inherited wealth. He liked to live elegantly, much as it galled him to have his expensive taste paid for by a woman he no longer loved. He was a bitter, disappointed man, greedy without being shrewd, 
ambitious without being clever. He didn't even care much for his mistress, who was quite plain. Rather, rather than thinking he might attract someone prettier if he lost weight and improved his own disposition and outlook, his idea was that he could afford to shack up with a nicer piece if he could spend more money on her. But there was a limit to how much knocking around he could get away with as long as his wife controlled the purse strings. He figured he would be a two-star or even a three-star general by now if it weren't for the stagnant frustration of Operation Drummer Boy. It had stymied his career, slowed down his promotions. While nobody could directly blame him for not being able to find the missing 24 drums, they weren't about to pat him on the back for it either, and they couldn't get a transfer away. And he couldn't get a transfer away from the operation. He had tried desperately to do so, but the need for secrecy was always cited. Anybody knew taking over the thing would have to be clued in, and it was best not to let the awful, embarrassing facts meander any further. So Colonel Grover was stuck in a thankless, probably futile assignment where he could be. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry about that where he could be a convenient whipping boy for the big brass if the snafu ever became more snafu'd, which became likelier and likelier with each passing year as those drums sitting somewhere were bound to corrode and corrode and eventually leak and crack. Pulling into his driveway, he detested the sight of the huge satellite dish antenna on the roof, spoiling the looks of the via. It was there because of Drummer Boy. He had to be in constant touch with the operation, even when he wasn't at Camp Pendleton, where he was currently stationed. Even a 50-mile drive down the coast didn't free him from the, the millstone around his neck that was far worse than any ordinary millstone because subconsciously it was weighted by 24 corpses in 24 lost steel drums. He used the automatic garage door opener to stow away, because that was a fancy device back then, to stow away the, the, the Mark 7. When he came into the kitchen, he greeted his wife Ethel with a peck to the cheek. He knew that he ought to give her a real smooch and a big hug so that she wouldn't suspect that maybe he hated her, but he couldn't bring himself to go to those lengths because she so utterly repulsed him. He found her body ugly and totally unsexy. She was short, flabby, and stocky, just like him. Oof. Boy, what a what a superficial people, huh? He tossed his gold-braided army hat on a chair and asked, and she asked him about how his day had been. He should have smiled warmly and mouthed some pleasantries, but he didn't. Instead, he heard himself saying, What do you think? The usual boring, demanding bullshit. I'm sorry, dear, said Ethel. It goaded him that she prided herself in being understanding when she really didn't understand a damn thing. What's for dinner? He probed. Your favorite lamb chops. I had them for lunch, he snapped. Taking a It's pork chops in the movie, I think. Uh, taking a mild pleasure in seeing the blank look on her chubby face melt to dismay. He tossed his army coat on top of his hat in the chair and walked through the living room into his study, a plush room of luxury leather and dark wood paneling that his wife had that his wife had lavished money on, especially to please him. The big window here behind his roll top desk had a wonderful view of the Pacific Ocean. So I actually kind of really like this chapter because it really sort of, you know, fleshes out Glover and his wife's relationship. You could see some of this in the context of their dialogue in in the actual film. Otherwise, it's just 
basically just a filler scene. The colonel admired the view for a second and then crossed the tan shag carpet to the drinks cabinet and opened it. Inside was an extensive array of electronical communications equipment. He removed a car key from his wallet and slid it into the console, checked his watch, picked up a special telephone and pressed a button. He got a coded tone sequence and then a password cue from a relay desk at Camp Pendleton. This is drummer boy Eagle, he said, checking in from Station 3 at 1,800 hours. I'll be home all evening. When he signed off, he poured himself a half tumbler of Jack Daniels neat and then turned around to see his wife looking at him, a mousy, timid expression on her face. He felt himself get hot under the collar. She had come into his study where she was never allowed to intrude. He wanted to smack her or at least cuss her out. But with great effort, he held his temper. Even poor, timid wretches could only take so much abuse. And he had remembered that she was a rich, timid wretch that he could not get along with uh, that he could not that he could not get along without for the time being. It's nerve wracking to live around so much equipment all the time, she ventured. They have to be able to reach me 24 hours a day, wherever I am. You know that, dear. Too bad they don't have a cell phone. A cell phone would get, would would cause this. Doesn't that stuff operate on microwaves? What if it's dangerous? It could give us cancer. He chuckled mirthless, mirthlessly. Operation Drummer Boy is giving me cancer, all right, but not for microwaves. She penetrated even deeper into his study and put her arm around him, giving him goosebumps. Dear, she said, I know how hard you're working and what a strain you must be under. You're a very understanding wife, Ethel. I appreciate you, and and I love you. One of these days, when we find the missing drums, we can have all the communications equipment taken out of here. But when will they be found? Christ, Ethel, I don't know. It's maddening. Maddening. They could be anywhere. Anywhere. When his wife retreated from the study, he shut the door and sipped his Jack Daniels, gazing out at the ocean, wishing he had never heard of Operation Drummer Boy. He had thought of the traitor Raymond Ashton, probably languishing in comfort somewhere in the Soviet Union after diverting the steel drums and murdering Colonel Peter Hoffman, who used to be Grover's commanding officer when he was a first lieutenant. Death and destruction to all communist traitors and defectors, Colonel Glover said out loud, raising his glass in a toast towards the Pacific Ocean before downing the whiskey all in one gulp. An unabashed patriot, he said, God save America, as he wiped his mouth with the back of his hand. And that brings us to the end of Chapter 7. Tune in next week when we go into Chapters 8 and 9. Um, so, yeah, like, do we even really need that scene either? It's like kind of like a filler scene, but still, for anybody who loves this stuff like seeing them talk like seeing any extra info any extra story um is something that we all crave even if even if it's mundane and boring i would say to an extent so you know um we're we're coming up i think next week we'll probably hit it to a, a part of the book that i found so terrifying i mean just spine tingling and terrifying to me personally and i'm really excited to uh read it again to me it's it's the most frightening part of the book and like i said russo he has his moments man he has his moments with the written word and then other times with dialogue not so much i'd say 
uh, written descriptors and uh, certain backstory details are Russo's um, Russo's uh, you know what he's good at and what he's really bad at is just like li- literally communicating dialogue that just doesn't even need to be said frankly in the scene so uh we'll see you next week make sure to like share subscribe all that good stuff yada 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 thank you so much peace and hair grease